My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly on Jesus' name. That sweetest frame is us, our frame. It's sweet because it's made in the image of God, but it's broken. It can't be trusted. We trust in His righteousness and in His name. For the last couple weeks, we had a series of studies on Friday, Sunday nights on the parables, stories Jesus told. We finished last night very meaningful five-part series that we enjoyed uh, together. And given that we finished last night and I had the chance to share again this morning, I've, uh, I've thought it would be good to finish Sabbath morning with yet another profound parable. Before we pray, let me bring us in to this scripture. The events of Jesus' life intensified as the cross drew nearer. And it was, according to the best timelines that can be put together, it was the Tuesday before his crucifixion when, when Jesus kind of entered up into Jerusalem and he entered in a fashion that signaled a shift was taking place. We now know that moment as the triumphal entry. When we find Jesus mounted on the, the back of a donkey, entering Jerusalem, crowds were celebrating, they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, and, and palm branches were, were waving and paving the way in a fashion that was in their culture the way that they would honor a conquering king. It was already a heightened moment there in Jerusalem. It was the time of the Passover. And just days before, Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. The pinnacle of his miracles. And Lazarus was part of this procession coming into Jerusalem. Witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection were present in this procession. And the news of this ultimate miracle had gone around far and wide like wildfire, and it had created a swell of excitement around Jesus. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. And as this, this really amazing, electric, celebratory moment was happening, as this powerful procession drew nearer to the city of Jerusalem, the, the city itself, its central core, it, it comes into view and the tone shifts. Jesus grieves as he looks upon his loved city. And he's grieving because of the widespread rejection of the kingdom of heaven. The Bible puts it this way in Luke 19. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying to the city, to the people, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, 
If you had known the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days, he's prophesying, for days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close in on every side and, and level you, Jerusalem, and your children with you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the day of the visitation of the Messiah. Grieving prophecy of what would happen just 40 years, the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of Rome in A.D. 70. And then Jesus, he entered into Jerusalem and in a dramatic show of God-honoring anger, Jesus drives out the merchants from the temple for the second time. And with a, a strong undertone of divine authority, he projected there in the temple, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And they fled from his divine presence. And in the vacancy just created in the temple, the Bible says that the blind and the lame entered in and Jesus healed them all. That night, he retreated to Bethany. For the night, probably the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Next day, he entered the temple again to teach, and once again the chief priest confronted him. Now, when Jesus came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? By what authority are you teaching? By what authority are you chasing us out of our temple? By what authority are you healing the lame and the blind? By what authority have you resurrected? As we hear the reports. Jesus didn't answer them really directly. Jesus asked them a question himself. And he says, well, you tell me, under what authority did John the Baptist preach? Was it heaven's authority? Or was it man's authority? They realized that they couldn't answer either way without setting themselves up. They had taken his life. They were stuck. So they answered, we don't know. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And Jesus then said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus chose not to answer them directly. But he, in that moment, he once again went into story time. He once again employed the power of parable, and he shared with him three parables. We're, we're going to look at the third parable at more length, but I want to highlight just as we flow into the context of why he spoke this parable in the first place. He, he told a parable of two sons, and, and one said, to his father, I'll go work in the vineyard, but he did not go work. And the other son says, no, I'm not going to go work, but he regrets it. And then he went to work. And Jesus said, for John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe. Jesus is saying, you're the one that said that you're going to be part of the kingdom, but you didn't go. And others says, I'm not part of the kingdom, and yet they're coming in. 
And then he sold a, a, a second parable, and it was about a man with a vineyard as well. And in this short little parable, the man who owned this vineyard, he, he travels away to a distant place, and he leaves his vineyard and his estate in the care of some of his servants. And after time, he's away. It's a time of harvest. And so the away owner of the vineyard sends some of his servants back to, to check in on his estate. But those that he had entrusted with its care beat and killed the messenger sent to get a report. And this happens a second time in this parable. And the third time, the vineyard owner says, I will send my own son to go check in on my estate. And the son goes to check and they killed him as well. Having shared that parable, Jesus then engages them in a kind of a, a question and answer back and forth and it reads this way therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes they've beaten and killed servants they've beaten and killed his son so now when the owner of the vineyard himself comes he asks the chief priest what will he do to those that he left in charge of his vineyard the vine dressers and they said to him well he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of the kingdom. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again a third time by parables and said, The Jewish religious leaders representing the nation, they had rejected the Father's Son, the cornerstone of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was confronting and appealing to his own nation. They heard in Jesus' words, at the very least, a prophet's voice of authority. But even recognizing his prophetic voice of authority, they wanted to take him right then and there by force. They would do that just a few days later. But at that moment, they wanted to take him, but they stepped back in fear because of the multitudes, because of the energy, because of that moment. And in that moment is when Jesus spoke the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding garment. This is why he told the story. Jesus tells them this story. It appeals to their hearts. It's a unique story parable because it's prophetic in nature. And it's an important parable to consider for all of those who, including me, including you, for anyone who wants and earnestly desire to be part of the kingdom of heaven, this parable is worthy 
of consideration. Let's pray about that. Our Father in heaven, Lord, speak to us through your words. The story that you told, you've preserved for us, and we get to hear you tell it again through the written word. Give us ears to hear and a gift of your spirit that we might discern your truth. Speak to us today, Lord. Appeal to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, let's read this third parable, the parable of the wedding feast. And we're going to read it carefully. And then we're going to spend a little time kind of going through the parable in a a few pieces, attempting to to hear the parable more in line with how a, a first century Jewish man or a woman or child or a first century Christian might have heard the parable, but as we read the parable, I want to invite you to, to overlay on it the scene of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I think that that scene of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, in my opinion, that's the proper tone to hear the parable. That's the voice, that's the mood, that's the heart that I want you to overlay as you hear the words that Jesus shared. He spoke this parable from a heavy heart. We'll look at the first eight verses of the parable. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and then sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, He sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and, and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, that they killed them, he was furious and he, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Jesus was clearly confronting, but yet appealing to those Jewish leaders, the Jewish nation that just wanted to take him by force, discerning that God was prophetically speaking to them, and and he's speaking yet again to them in story. And, And part of what he is saying is, listen, you're not entering into this new kingdom of heaven. It's rising up right before your eyes. Jesus is appealing expressly telling the story to describe the kingdom that they're resisting. And the story went like this. A king arranged a marriage for his son, the prince. And as would still be true today, the fact that this was a king would have caught the attention of those listening and added significance to the invitation. What an honor to be invited to a royal wedding. Marriages were arranged 
Leaders of families would make arrangements in their own culture. A contract would kind of be agreed upon. And when the agreement was sealed, the two were officially married, but they would not come together until the celebration of the wedding, the wedding feast. Wedding feasts were were highlighted social events, especially if it was tied to royalty and And they often lasted for days and days and days depending on the resources of the person funding the wedding celebration. Well, in the parable, the story, servants were sent out to offer personal invitations. It wasn't just a posted degree by the king demanding that everyone was come. No, personal individuals, servants of the king, sent out to personally invite to the wedding celebration. But those who were invited, it says they were not willing to come. And that detail would have caught your ear as astonishing if you were in the culture that Jesus first shared it in because of their unwillingness to come was so counter to social customs and etiquette. It simply didn't happen that you refused an invitation such as this, especially if it was an invitation from the king. And notice that it doesn't say that they could not come. They simply didn't want to come. The king, though, is gracious in the story and maybe assumes that they just don't understand the invitation. And so he sends the inviters again to make sure that, that, they, that they understood that, that it's going to be great. This, this wedding celebration, it's going to be wonderful. Everything is prepared. Everything is ready for you. The food is prepared. There's going to be beef at the wedding, which was a, a costly delicacy, not an average thing. It was something of significance and celebration. It's all set. Just come. So he sends out that second invitation. Maybe they'll understand if I explain it further to them. But at that second invitation, the story says they shrugged off the king's invitation without much thought again. Some just were indifferent. Eh. And they went about their daily activities, some to the farm and others to business. But some are more than just indifferent, more than just, just not interested at this invitation. Some reacted to this invitation with violence. And they treated the king's servants terribly, and they killed them. And when reports came back to the king that this had happened, not only had they rejected the invitation, but they actually violently killed those that you sent to offer this kind invitation. The king became angry towards this gross misconduct. So the king sends out armies and to exact rightly justice for those who had murdered and destroyed their cities. Let's pause the story there for a moment. The parable is loaded with with lots of imagery and, and it was actually prophetic in nature. In this parable, God the Father is the King. And the Son of the King who is to be married is Jesus. And, and the marriage represents the, the coming together of, of the Messiah and God's people to form the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to establish. And the invitation represents God's gracious efforts to to invite the Israelites over centuries, to invite the Jewish nation 
to, uh, recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah and to invite them into becoming part of the kingdom of God. And so far in the story, there, the king has issued two invitations. The first invitation was a gracious, long, enduring call. All the way through the Old Testament, this invitation is being presented that a day would come, a day would come. The prophets of the Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah's kingdom and and God was extending an invitation to those living at the time of Jesus, at the time of visitation of the Messiah. He was still extending those Old Testament prophetic invitations through the recorded sacred text of the Old Testament that the chief priest had more access to than anybody else. But it wasn't just that written invitation. The Jewish leaders, they had the Scripture, but they failed to receive Jesus. The Bible says in John 1 that He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. The first invitation extended really beyond the written Scripture, but there were present messengers Even in the days of Jesus, John the Baptist being the forerunner to say the Messiah is coming, the kingdom of God is at hand, the invitation to come and be a part of this. But not just John the Baptist, he sent the 12 disciples, he sent the 70 out specifically to the Jewish nation. Matthew 10, 5-7, the Bible reads, the 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is now. It is at hand. They were sent specifically, not to the Gentiles, but to the Jewish nation. The king is disappointed in the lack of response. But he was willing to forgive their rudeness and offers a stronger invitation. Tell him it's all ready. It's going to be great food. The fatted calf has been butchered and prepared. Please come. The second invitation was given with greater clarity. This represents that even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the invitation to the Jewish nation was still open. The heart of God still pleading. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, talking to his messengers who would send out the gospel invitation into the kingdom, he says in 1 verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and then go first to Jerusalem and Judah. The invitation still extended. And now they had the gift of hindsight. They could look back at the dramatic evidence of He really was the Messiah. And they were seeing the testimony under the power of the Holy Spirit. The invitation going forth in greater clarity. And yet they rejected it still. And killed those who brought the invitation. Acts 7 and Acts 8. The stoning of Stephen followed by a great persecution towards the followers of Jesus that were inviting others into the kingdom of God. And as the parable phrased it, with Stephen and the others, they seized the servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. 
The king responds with just actions to those who murdered his servants. It says, he sent out his armies and destroyed the murderers and burned up their city. He had prophesied of this as he wept over Jerusalem. And many hold that in the parable, this is a prophetic element referring to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of Rome in A.D. 70. And so after centuries of invitations, after clear invitations after the cross and resurrection, the king comes to the realization that those who had been so graciously invited proved not worthy of the invitation. And so a third invitation is sent. It reads this way. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good, bad, and good, and the wedding hall was then filled with guests. The wedding is ready, but those who were initially invited proved not worthy. So the king says, different strategy, a new day. Go out everywhere and invite as many as you find. And that's what they did. They went and they invited anyone they could find, both good and bad, it says, and were welcomed into the wedding. The wedding celebration finally began and the wedding hall was filled up. The Jewish nation distinctly and graciously had been invited to to fill the wedding hall of the Messiah's kingdom, but they rejected it over and over and over again. The gospel invitation then went to whoever might receive it. Go anywhere and everywhere and invite them all. Jews were still welcome, but, but not because they belonged to a distinct people of God, but because they were individuals who could make their own decisions. But in that moment, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were now included in the invitation to come to the wedding. The Bible says, first go to Jerusalem, then Judea, then to Samaria, and then go everywhere. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is sent with the gospel message to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they are baptized into the kingdom of heaven. The invitation to the highways and the byways and to anyone who might be willing to come. So you can see that this parable, spoken at very intense moments, just days before Jesus' death, it was loaded with appeal and, and loaded with prophetic glimpse and power. But this was not the end of the parable. The wedding hall was filled up, but then something happens that takes the story in a new direction. It's the same parable, but it seems like we've closed that chapter and something new is now happening. This is how the parable continues. But when the king came in to a full wedding hall to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come into here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The wedding hall is full with those who have received the invitation. The king comes in, it's his celebration too. The king comes in to reside over the festivities, to engage the, the celebration. And he notices that one man in the wedding hall was not wearing a wedding garment. 
special wedding garments were often provided to those who were invited to events like this, especially royal weddings. They were provided with a proper garment to wear. And and a wedding hall filled with properly attired guests would be an honor to the king and an honor to the occasion. Just on a very small level, supposing you are a seamstress and and you're going to have a a family reunion and, and you sew all the children little shirts and dresses from your own labor, from your own sacrifice, your own resources. And when all the children come to the family reunion, they're all wearing the clothing that you have made and provided. Can you just imagine how how that just feels so good? It's such a, a meaningful thing. They appreciate what I've given them. Well, the king had done that. He had provided everybody with a garment. And there was one man there who didn't have that garment on. So he approaches this man not wearing the provided wedding garment and his tone is kind. Friend? Friend, how did you get in here without wearing the garment that I gave you? It would seem that the king was willing to maybe forgive the situation. Perhaps it wasn't of his doing. Maybe, maybe he didn't understand the etiquette and how things were supposed to work. Or, or perhaps the royal servants had, had made some mistake and it just kind of Oops, and we could correct this situation. But the parable very poignantly says the man was speechless. Didn't have any good excuse. He had no one to cast blame upon but himself, so he held his tongue. For whatever reason, we're not told in the parable, he declined the provided garment. Perhaps he liked his own garment better. So the king calls his servants and gives a regrettable and disappointing command. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Take him away and cast him in outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's a disappointing and regrettable thing. But the king says, arrest the man and take him away from the wedding feast. Cast him outside of this, and there will be distress. Jesus then closes the parable with an appropriate statement. Many are called, but few are chosen. Indeed, many, many, many had been invited over and over and over again, but only a few accepted the invitation, and only those who wore the provided garment were chosen. It's an amazing story. The wedding garment seems pretty important, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, this garment is, is what qualified the guests to be part of the royal wedding celebration. Those who had the provided wedding garment on were honoring the king. They were being blessed by the, the joy of the son's wedding. And they were dressed to stay. But the one who rejected the provided garment was cast out of the wedding celebration. Seems to me this garment is really important. So what does the garment represent? The garment represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
The garment is the righteousness of Jesus. The wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ that upon us, must be upon us or else we'll miss the wedding feast. Entering the wedding, being part of the kingdom of God both now and for eternity, we need that garment of Christ's righteousness. Listen, we have no righteousness truly of our own to wear. The, the only way we can present ourselves as, as, as worthy to be part of God's kingdom is when we are covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It is His righteousness that we must robe ourselves in if we are to be part of God's kingdom. Every thread of this robe is sourced in Jesus. The man who rejected the provided garment would then represent those who trust in their own garments. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will always fall short of fitting us for heaven's wedding. This man represents perhaps those who, who profess to be Christian. They want the, the blessings, they want the privileges of the kingdom of God, but they feel no need to be transformed by the covering of Christ's righteousness. They believe themselves to be good enough in their own garments. They rest upon their own merits instead of the merits of Christ. They're only hearers of the word and not doers putting on the righteousness of Jesus. They have not placed their trust in the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness. That's a big concept that is deep and wide and will probably unpack for eternity. I honestly don't have it all fully understood and internalized. I am still learning right alongside of you. But let me share a little thought, a few things about the righteousness of Christ. True righteousness means being like God. That's a loaded sentence. True righteousness means being like God. The truth of the matter is that on our own, by our own efforts, we can't possibly be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. In our broken frame, we don't fully love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't fully love our neighbors as ourselves. We have a problem, and the problem is called sin. We're born with it. We cannot overcome the effects of it on our own. Sin radically affects us to the very core of our broken being. Sin affects what we do, what we say, how we think. In other words, sin taints everything about us. Therefore, no matter how good we try to be, we will never meet God's standard of perfection on our own. The Bible says that even the best righteous deeds that we can put forth are filthy because of the stain of sin. Our own righteousness is simply not 
good enough and never will be, no matter how hard we try. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life of full obedience to the law of God. A perfect life, a righteous life, just like God in full harmony with the law of God in thought and word and deed. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' mission was was not only to, to die on the cross for our sins, but also to live a life of perfect righteousness that could be given as a covering garment to those who need a covering garment. Romans chapter 3 reads this way, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through our faith in Christ, the righteousness of God is is given to us, is put upon us through faith. When we place our faith in Christ, God ascribes the perfect righteousness of Christ to us so that we might be perfect in His sight. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. His righteousness given to me, my sin placed upon Him. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. The sins of all humanity He took upon Himself so that He could cover us in His righteous life. And with Christ's righteousness covering my sin, I am now given in Christ right standing before God. And in Christ's righteousness, I'm daily transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It begins to work a good work in me. Through Jesus, God both gives us righteousness and works to make us more like Him. That we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. This is why Paul could write perhaps my favorite verse in all of the writings of Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I accept his death as my invitation to be in heaven with him. It's no longer I who live. It's not my works that save me. Never will I be able to cover my own sin. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. The righteousness of Christ covers me. It lives on me. In me. It is his robe and his robe alone. But in His righteousness, the life that I now live in this flesh, 
the deeds of my hands that I do, the works that I perform, they're not my works. They're His works living in me. The works that I do in this fleshly existence of brokenness, I live by faith in the Son of God. I believe that with His covering by faith, my deeds are deemed worthy. They are Jesus' deeds working through me, not my efforts, but Christ in me. And why would He have done that? Who loved me and gave Himself for me. He died so that I might be covered by His perfect righteousness. We need to conclude. I don't want to do it in this way. In Revelation chapter 3, We are counseled to buy white garments that we may be clothed in such a way that our shame is covered. And then in Revelation 19, we see a great worship scene. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a a great multitude and the sound of of many waters as the sound of mighty thunders. A, A powerful sound is what John heard saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to Him. For the marriage, the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true sayings of God. Christ has provided you a righteous garment to wear. So that you can be qualified to enter the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the wedding celebration of Jesus Christ and His bride of the church the kingdom of heaven that is now present and yet fuller to come. If you and I were together in a room and, and I was standing near the door and you were seated and it was time to go and, and so I grabbed your coat off the coat rack and I said, here, let me help you with your coat. The instinctive thing to do would be to stand up and say, yeah, here, let me put my arm through. Jesus has a garment He wants to put on you. Do you want to wear His righteous garment? If it is able, and I know not everyone here, it's, it's easy to do, but I invite you to stand if you want to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. He has a a garment He wants to put on you. And, and if standing is challenging, it's okay. Raise your hand. That will be your way of standing. I invite you to stand to, to live this life no longer in self-righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. Covered in His righteousness. As we close today, I want to invite you to read Scripture aloud with me. And then we'll pray. Can you read along with me out loud? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Our Father in heaven, may it be so. Cover us in your provided garment. And Lord, we want to live this life with joy, knowing that we belong to your kingdom because of your righteousness, not our own. In your name we pray. Amen.